You're listening to The Word of Hope, a radio ministry of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Our preacher is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller with today's Word of Hope. In the name of Jesus, amen. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Dear saints, we are uh, listening again to Jesus in John 16 the day before the crucifixion, preparing His disciples for what is to come after His death and after His resurrection. But it would be better with this text, at least, instead of speaking of what is to come, to speak of who is to come. Because Jesus is here in this text promising to send the Holy Spirit. And this is, if not the greatest, at least one of the greatest gifts of the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh. This indeed is a mystery because the Holy Spirit has always been around. He is the eternal God, eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is there at the very beginning of creation. Remember, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. And the Holy Spirit was there throughout the Old Testament. King David prayed in this famous psalm, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. We know that it's the Holy Spirit who creates faith. Not just in the New Testament church, but in the Old Testament church as well. Anyone who believed in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, had saving faith in the Old Testament, had that faith from the Holy Spirit. But there is something unique with the Holy Spirit that happens at the ascension. When Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father, and now the Holy Spirit is not just proceeding from the Son's divine nature, but He's proceeding from the Son who is both God and man. The Holy Spirit proceeds forth from the one who was dead and raised for our justification. Now the Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh as Joel promised and as Peter preached fulfilled on Pentecost. And we'll hear more of this in the weeks to come. But as far as our text goes, Jesus is now pointing to the sending of the Holy Spirit as a comfort to the disciples who are about to lose their Lord. He says, Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says to the disciples this thing which would be impossible for them to believe apart from the Holy Spirit, that it is to their advantage that he is gone. Because Jesus' ascension means the sending of the Helper. And this Helper is the Holy Spirit, also known as the Comforter or the Advocate. The Greek word there we've talked about before is the word paraclete, which is a difficult word to bring into English. It's a, it's a legal term. It's, it's an official of the court and one who is at the courtroom by your side, like a defense attorney. There's a really wonderful thing about that word paraclete in the scriptures. Jesus has already used it as a title for the Holy Spirit in chapter 14. And now John, the apostle, who picks up this language here from Jesus, will use this word as a title for Jesus in his first epistle. This is 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. John writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate a paraclete, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
Here, the word's translated advocate. As John is teaching how Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father and is speaking to the Father on our behalf. He is pleading your case. He's making the argument for the forgiveness of your sins and he is presenting as evidence for that his suffering, his death, his scars. But it's not just Jesus who's given this title. Jesus gives this title, paraclete, also to the Holy Spirit. So as Jesus is paracleting before the Father, making the case for your forgiveness, the Holy Spirit is paracleting in our own conscience, making the case, the same case, that we are sinners forgiven by Jesus. And this is simply wonderful. That in, the, in, in heaven, right at this very moment, that Jesus is speaking on your behalf. And now... At this very moment in your conscience, the Holy Spirit is speaking on Jesus' behalf for you. Now, Jesus in the text will unfold this teaching by telling the disciples what exactly the Holy Spirit will do, what the work of the Holy Spirit will be. And it's a threefold work. Jesus says it like this. And when he, the paraclete, the comforter, the helper comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus here outlines the three main works of the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin, to convict the world of righteousness, and to convict the world of judgment. And we consider these this morning. Now, at first, it looks like all three of these things are all law. But Jesus will explain what they mean, and we'll see that the Holy Spirit does his work both of law and of gospel. First, the Spirit convicts the world of sin because they do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit has the unique work of bringing the crushing weight of the law to bear on the sinner's conscience. Now, we know, at least most of us who are not you know, there is a diagnosis, uh, a mental diagnosis, where people don't have a conscience, that they don't actually feel guilt. As far as I know, none of you have that. <laughs> You'll want to let me know if you have that diagnosis. But most of us, most people, have a conscience that knows when we've done something wrong. When we sin, our conscience is inflamed. It kind of swells up, and we know that we made a mistake and we're troubled. But the Holy Spirit comes along and it does more. The Holy Spirit shows us that what we've done to hurt our neighbor or to hurt ourself is also a sin against God. The Holy Spirit shows us that our sins are sins against God's law, that we've offended His holiness and that we deserve, because of our sin, His wrath. And while the Holy Spirit will convict us of all sin, of breaking all of the commandments, it is His special work to show us that we've broken the first commandment, that we haven't believed in God, that we've had other gods, that we've feared and loved and trusted just about everything else above God. And when the Holy Spirit is doing this work, He's getting down to the heart of the matter. He's showing us how we've lost the image of God, how sin has infected every part of us. You see, the Holy Spirit convicts us of more than just our sins, the things that we've done wrong, or the things that we didn't do right. The Holy Spirit comes to show us that we are sinners. This is original sin. The corruption that clings to our nature from the very moment of our conception. The sin that was passed down to us from our fathers all the way back to Adam. 
This is the difference, the difference between the actual sin and original sin. This is the difference between confessing, I have sinned, and confessing, I'm a sinner. Now, both are true, but that first thing, I've sinned, is obvious. You can look at your own life and see what you've done wrong. But this confession that I am a sinner is not as obvious. It has to be worked by the Holy Spirit. Consider your standard unbeliever, Xerxes the unbeliever. And you go and ask him, have you sinned? And I suspect he'll answer, yes. Now, you might have to help him out a little with the law, tell him that stealing is a sin, that lying is a sin, that lust is a, is a sin. But Xerxes, the unbeliever, will finally come to this confession. But then ask this guy if he is a good person. And he will say, yes. Or, I think so. Or, I'm trying to be. You know how that goes? We've sinned, and we know that. But, a heart, but apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we do not know how deep that sin goes. We do not know that we are sinners. Original sin is so deep a corruption of our nature that we don't see it or feel it or know it naturally. We only know and see and feel the effects of us. It's the difference, remember, of a man who falls off the ladder and breaks his leg and the man who falls off the ladder and breaks his leg and his neck. You ask the first man, how are you doing? And he'll tell you, I'm hurt, I've broke my leg. But you ask the second man how he's doing and he'll answer, I don't know, I can't feel my legs. And this is how deep the wound is for us, that we cannot feel the depth of our own sinfulness. So it is the Holy Spirit's first work to reveal this to us. To convict, says Jesus, the world of sin because they do not believe in Him. To show the rottenness of our thoughts and our words and our deeds and how this rottenness goes all the way down to our hearts and the stench that comes from there, even if we cannot smell it, is repulsive to God. And the Holy Spirit does this through the preaching of the law. But this first work of the Holy Spirit is followed by the second work. He will convict the world of righteousness because I am going to the Father. So the Holy Spirit convicts the world, that is, He convicts us of righteousness. This is His second work. And it sounds strange. Probably this sounds strange because of the word convict, the word convict there. We think of being convicted of a crime. This, though, is the conviction of innocence. It's the declaration of righteousness. It's the imputation of the perfection of Christ. This Convicting the world of righteousness is justification, the justification of the sinner by grace through faith. This, too, is the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word. Jesus, in His death and in His resurrection, has accomplished the satisfaction for our sins. He has died and been raised and ascended to the Father. His work, like He said on the cross, is finished. But now the Holy Spirit brings to us the saving work of Jesus. He convicts the world of righteousness. That is, He preaches the gospel. This word righteousness is one of the most important words in the Bible. It means keeping the law. And it stands alongside words like holiness and perfection. And we often think of it as a word of the law. Like this. How does a person become righteous? Answer, by living according to the Ten Commandments. That's true. But if that's the only way to be righteous, then all of us would be doomed. 
try as we might, and we ought to try, to keep the commandments, we fail. So the scripture teaches that there is a righteousness of the gospel, an alien righteousness, an external righteousness, a righteousness that is imputed to us, it's given to our account, and this is the righteousness of Jesus, his perfect keeping of the law, both in what he did do and what he didn't do, his holiness and his perfection, his righteousness is given to us as a gift in the preaching of the gospel. The picture we use for these two types of righteousness is the child that's eating dinner, you, do, you, do you remember as a child, I was trying to remember this this morning, and I remember being a child and remember thinking that it was hard to finish dinner. I can't imagine that now. You know, as I pick up every single last crumb and wish there was more. But as a child, it's difficult to finish your dinner. Now, there are two ways for the child to be finished with dinner, right? The one is to eat all the food, and they're finished. But the other is to ask their mom or their dad, Can I be done? And if the mom or the dad says, you're finished, they're finished. Even if there's still food on the plate. Even if they haven't done the required work. The declaration of a finished dinner has been made. And dinner is over. And this is how the righteousness of God comes to us in the gospel. You have not done all that you should, but Jesus has declared it done. Finished. The work is accomplished. Dinner is over. Your righteousness is... Um, is given to you. This is what to- Paul is talking about all through his epistles. Here, here's Romans 4, 5. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Galatians two sixteen. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. I've heard justification defined before like this, just as if I had never sinned. And this is true, but this is only the first part of justification. Jesus not only takes away our sin, he then gives us the gift of his own righteousness. He gives us the gift of his perfection. He gives us the gift of his holiness. Justification is both taking away of sin and giving righteousness. Back to the dinner imagination. Imagine that, that you were assigned to bring dinner to the table. And so you went outside in the street and you grabbed some roadkill. I'm sorry about this. It's just, it's, it's kind of going to get worse. It's good. We have a couple hours to lunch, so. <laughs> you get this rotting, stinky possum carcass and slop it, the mush of it down on your plate. And you bring it to the table. Now, that's about how good your good works are. That's how it is with you and your sin. And that is not going to do you any good. So Jesus comes along and he takes your plate and he dumps off the filth and he takes the plate and he brings it to you and he, and he puts it back in front of you. He gives you a clean plate, a clean slate. That's the forgiveness of sins. And a lot of Christians think that this is justification, that this is the gospel. That Jesus cleans off the plate and now it's time for them to get out there and cook something better. To bring something else nice to the table. They failed the first time, but the second time around, they're going to do it right. But this is only the first part of righteousness. The first part of forgiveness. Jesus does not leave you with an empty plate. 
When you came to the table with your rotting stink, Jesus was sitting on the other side of the table with a plate piled high of all sorts of wonderful things. In my imagination, it's a pizza. In yours, it's something different, I'm sure. Put your favorite food on the plate of Jesus, cooked perfectly, smelling wonderful. And when you come to the table with your rotten, maggot-filled possum carcass, Jesus takes your plate for his own dinner. And he gives you his. (laughs) He suffers your sin. And you are given his righteousness. Now, I'm sorry that it's disgusting. But there is something incredibly distasteful about the work that Jesus does on the cross, where he is suffering what you should suffer. He despises the shame of the cross, the stench of death that is your sin and mine, that Jesus himself suffers in order to give to you his righteousness. So your plate, dear saints, is not empty. Jesus does not give you a clean slate. He gives you his righteousness. So when the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit look upon you, they see not your sin, but the righteousness of Jesus. Everything that he did in his life and his death to please the Father is yours. So according to you, to God's reckoning, you are as righteous as Jesus is. And you bring as much delight to the Father as Jesus does. By faith. So the Holy Spirit convicts the world of righteousness. And then there is a third work of the spirit that Jesus speaks of. It says, he will convict the world of judgment. This again sounds like law until we hear Jesus explains what it means concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. This is the work of the spirit to convict us, to convince us and to give us the comfort that the devil has been judged. Now, the Holy Spirit, again, has to do this work because just as we don't know and see the depth of our sin, and just as we don't know and see the righteousness that Jesus has won for us on the cross, so we don't know and see that the devil has been defeated and overcome. What we see when we look around is the devil running around seemingly unfettered, bringing violence and destruction all over the world. And we hear the devil's voice ourselves tempting us, throwing unbelief into our heart and confusing law and gospel. We see false teaching everywhere, a false understanding of reason and natural law destroying the state, false doctrine destroying the church. And it looks to us like the devil has free reign. So the Holy Spirit comes to show us that this is not true. That the devil has been judged. Consider especially Hebrews 2, uh, verses 14 and 15. And these are words that we should engrave on our hearts. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That is, Jesus became a man, a human being, to be able to die. So that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus, the scripture tells us, with a plainness that is unmistakable, Jesus by his death destroyed the power of the devil. He stripped from the devil his greatest weapon, which is the fear of death. Death normally comes to people with a terrifying fear of judgment, but not for the Christian who's passed already from death to life, from sin to forgiveness, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. To the Christian who is a friend of God, there is nothing to fear, nothing to dread. Death for us, death for you is a kind of sleep, a peaceful sleep. 
So to close our eyes to sleep the sleep of death is to open them and see the face of Jesus. His smile. His love. And the Holy Spirit does the work of convicting of this. Convicting us of this. The judgment of the devil. He convicts us, convinces us that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and that He rules and reigns the universe and all for the sake of the church. We are not, dear saints, look-aroundists who determine truth from what we see. We are Christians determining truth from what Jesus says. And it is the Holy Spirit who brings this truth to us in the word of the prophets, in the words of the apostles, in the preaching of the word. So Jesus promises, and here is the end of the text. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guard you, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. I have heard the accusation leveled against the Lutherans that we never talk about the Holy Spirit. Have you heard that too? Now, I suspect what this means is Lutherans never talk much about God on the inside, about that whispering voice that you hear in your heart. Lutherans never talk about that internal tugging, about the impulses that we feel that are supposed to be from God. And this might be true. And the reason is because the Holy Spirit gets to your heart through your ear. Whatever internal voice we hear is first and must first be from the external word. The Holy Spirit, dear saints, is not in the impulse business. He's in the word business because he's in the certainty business. And the Holy Spirit does not want your faith resting on your feelings, on the vague impulses that occur in the heart and in the conscience. The Holy Spirit comes rather to convict, to bring certainty. And dear saints, we have this certainty. We know for a certainty that we are sinners. And that our sin goes all the way down to the heart. We know as a certainty that we have deserved God's temporal and eternal punishment. And we know as a certainty even more sure that Jesus himself has carried all our sin, suffered all our suffering, delivered to us his perfection and his righteousness. We know for sure that we are holy and justified and forgiven and that there is nothing to fear. For we know by the Holy Spirit that though the devil rage, we belong to Jesus and salvation belongs to us. This certainty, this comfort, this is the work of the Spirit. It is the work that he does in his church. And it is the work that he has done today. Amen. And may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
We hope you were blessed by today's Word of Hope. Hope Lutheran Church is located at 1345 Macon Street in Aurora, Colorado. Their weekly schedule is as follows. Sunday morning worship at 9.15, adult Bible class and youth Sunday school at 10.45 a.m. On Tuesday mornings, there is a matin service at 8.30 a.m. with a Bible class to follow at 9.30 a.m. You can find out more about Hope Lutheran Church at www.hope-aurora.org. That's www.hope-aurora.org. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you in His grace.